Welcome to the MacPFD Spark Podcast. This podcast is meant to inspire you to take the next step in your development journey as a faculty member. We're really excited to bring you all sorts of content, from inspiring you to teach or supervise differently, to leading and managing your team, to thinking about new creative ways or humanistic ways to actually do your work, and finally, to up your game in your scholarly practice. Are you excited yet? I certainly am. So sit back, listen, and enjoy this latest episode of the Mac PFD Spark podcast. In this episode, we listen to Dr. Irene Turpy talk about her experience in the field of medicine. She discusses topics such as her move to Canada and her journey into medicine, some of her awards and accomplishments, and how she overcame difficulties in her career. We hope you enjoy. Welcome, Dr. Chirpy. I am so happy to see you on Zoom today and also do our Spark podcast recording. Tell us a little bit about yourself. I know that you have an extensive history with the Faculty of Health Sciences, and so I would love for our listeners also to learn a bit more about you. Where do you want me to start? Um, <laughs> <laughs> yes. When did you come to the Faculty of Health Sciences? And okay, what well, I should here? probably start a little before that because it, it's in that, obviously, as you can tell from the way I speak, I'm not I'm not a born Canadian, as, as are many people, but I grew up in Scotland. I grew up in Glasgow, which was one of the poorer cities of Glasgow. So I grew up in Glasgow, and that's where I got my medical education. So I grew up in a city that had a lot of lower socioeconomic factors about it. And medical students find it hard to believe when I say we had people with rickets in, in our wards and, mm. and, of course, rheumatic heart disease and, and in fact, tuberculosis. So, so all of these diseases were common in Glasgow when I was a medical student. I was in a class of about 180, of which 20 were women. And there were all kinds of restrictions on being a woman in Glasgow. In we weren't allowed to join the Medical Chirurgical Society. We were segregated in, for various classes and, and in various forms. The famous quotation that was made, not only to me, but to a friend of mine who got the gold medal for our class. Um, and uh, she became a great colleague of Dr. John Beanhamstock. She became a very uh, eminent uh, immunologist. There's no place in Glasgow for women in medicine. Incredible. I know. Well, I mean, that was that was obviously many, many years ago. But but when people say things have got to change, and the students were saying that to me yesterday, things have got to change. And I said, what do you mean? Things have changed. <laughs> and I think often that today we are unaware of the changes of yesterday. And I presume that's what you're wanting to, to, for me to talk to, to you about, because that's what it was like when I graduated. And then when I graduated, I did a, a, an unusual thing in that a lot of people from Glasgow, including my, my new husband, who I don't know if you're going to talk to him or not, but uh, we went to Nairobi in Kenya. And, and that was just after Nairobi, uh, just after Kenya had become independent. Uh, 
and it was to help establish a medical school in Nairobi. And I wasn't there as establishing a medical school. There was lots of important people from Glasgow that went there and but they took staff of all levels and my husband was one of the staff that went there so I spent my first residency in Kenya and I was the only Caucasian in a group of 20 residents and I went I suppose I went in there you know thinking well I've come from Glasgow I know everything And it took me about two days to learn that, A, I knew nothing about medicine in Kenya and and, and that my colleagues who had grown up and and my new colleagues who'd grown up and learned medicine in Kenya knew knew ever so much more than I did and who proceeded to teach me for the rest of my time in Kenya. And that has given me and I think my husband and I a great a great love and empathy for Africa. And and I have certainly spent some of my professional life as a faculty member in in Africa too. So I just wanted to to make that clear to you. And and in fact, I, I don't know if you're going to talk to my husband or not, but he used to go down to the Nairobi snake park every morning with one of his chums and the, the, the guy there would milk the snakes. And it was, <laughs> no, no, wait a minute. It was the Malaysian pit viper, I think it was. You, you need to ask him. <laughs> but its venom had an anticoagulant in it. And that is what got my husband interested in, in uh, blood uh, coagulation in Nairobi, continued it in Glasgow. And then he came, and this is why we came to Canada. He came to Canada to work with Fraser Mustard, who, Mm. as you know, was the first, I think he was the first dean. He certainly was the first Mm. chair of pathology at McMaster. And that's what brought us to Canada so that Graham could work with Fraser Mustard, a privilege that I think he's, he would, he, he, one of his great life privileges was to work with this, this man who really was just a marvelous fellow. Oh, incredible. And I, I do hope to interview your husband. Yeah, you ask him about the future the, as the, well. The yes. Yes. <laughs> yes, that's then, right. Then he come anyway. And, and, and so we came to Canada at 1970. And I and I can remember sitting on the lawn. I think there's a car park there now in front of the McMaster University Medical Center when Bill Davis, who was the premier of Ontario, came and opened the medical center. At that time, there was 20 medical students. There's still some around. I don't know if you've been in touch with Ralph Block. He's still around. John Cunnington's still around. Uh, But you could probably talk to them and get some good talks from them about what it was like to be in the medical school at that point. Wow, incredible. So so anyway, so I had three small children at that point. And even in 1970, it was there was no maternity leave policies, none of that kind of stuff really for, for women in medicine. And indeed, it was expected, certainly in Scotland, that when women had children, they stayed home and looked after their children, right? Uh, so, so when I came to Canada, I, I really had no, we, well, we were only going to come for two years anyway. <laughs> oh, and look at what happened to that. I know. Uh, anyway, we, I, I wasn't going to work at all. 
However, I started to get back to work. I um, worked with a family doctor uh, down in uh, Hamilton who allowed me a great deal of leeway. And my, if my kids were sick, you know, it wouldn't, he would just cover whatever it was I was supposed to do. And it was there that I got interested in, well, I always was kind of interested in the care of the elderly. Um, uh, that's another story for another day, I think. But, but, uh, and I got interested in working up at Macassar Lodge, which I did. I worked up at Macassar Lodge and used to go there two days a week. And that would just keep me going while, uh, while for the time we were there. And then it became longer and I stayed longer. And then I think about 1977, I said to my husband, I'm bored. Um, I'm bored. And I think I'd like to do what was denied to me in Scotland. I think I'd like to do internal medicine. And so I went to see Graham Pineo was his name. He was the residency program director. And I said, look here. And I knew him because I knew because my husband by this time was on faculty. So I said to him, could I please be a resident next year? And he looked at me because I was a bit older than the residents at this point, um, obviously. But but my youngest was about to go to kindergarten. So she was so. So I started uh, and did my residency at McMaster and it was great. Everybody was so, I mean, it was hard work, uh, but it was so lovely to get back into medicine and everybody was so um, supportive. And it was about eight years that I'd only been working part time and only on the sort of fringes of medicine. So a lot had happened since then. Uh, and of course, when we were in Nairobi, nobody, uh, there was no, there was no ICUs, there was no coronary care units, there was none. And these things were just beginning here in Canada. Uh, and the ICU at St. Joe's was on the ground floor and the CCU was on the the seventh floor and we had to run up the stairs if ever there was an emergency call because we weren't allowed to use the elevators in case they stopped made us very fit yes (laughs) (laughs) now and it was about this time I mean well I I told you I'd worked at McCaslin Lodge so I was interested in in the care of the elderly and it was quite clear that there was going to be more older adults around Mm in coming years. And um, when I'd finished my internal medicine training, there was a a fellowship that I got from the Baycrest in Toronto. It was the Nicholas and Hedy Monk Award. And these were far-sighted people who had left money in their, I think it was a bequest to, to allow physicians to go abroad and train in geriatric medicine because geriatric medicine was very much more established in the United Kingdom at this point and uh, that is what I did I went back for six months and and then when I came back I I was on uh, faculty here at McMaster that sounds all very boring actually no it, it's very interesting to me and you mentioned just a couple seconds ago that you thought you would save the story for another time however I would love to bring this story in right now because I was introduced to you and familiar with your name because of the awards that you've received over the past 
several decades. And so I'm going to highlight a couple and then also highlight a recent news article that I saw that was quoting you in the uh, in your recommendations for healthy living in the community. So you have- I haven't done that yes. for years. I used to write read things in the spec, but I haven't done oh, anything. Yes. So uh, I know that you had won the Distinguished Service Award from the Canadian Geriatric Society in 2004. You've also been nominated, or not nominated, you received the 2014 Lifelong Achievement Award as well. Mm -hmm. In the uh, So those, those were some awards that I was aware of. And I know that you've also, as you've mentioned now, received other fellowships and awards. And then the more recent article that I had read about you or quoting you is around staying safe and active in the community and oh, so uh, i know that was that thing they did in june yes, it was a yes. video it wasn't an article at least yeah, i don't yeah. think it was oh, okay yes, so there was yeah. there was also an article that was connected to that and that was put uh forward by the hamilton health sciences and uh, so I, I saw that quote as well and about how you live close to a park and you can walk your dog. And um, so that was advocating for healthy and active living. So having read these articles from you as well as the awards you've received, I, I've been interested in hearing what prompted your interest in geriatrics? And I know that you're saying you wanted to save that story for another time, but I would love to hear a bit more about your passion for geriatric care, as well as some of the work that you've done in this area, whether it be in research, teaching, or community involvement. All right. Well, the first thing, I've always enjoyed talking to older adults, and I've always enjoyed history. My grandfather, who was born about 1860, I mean, I'm quite old. My grandfather once said to me, shake my hands, Irene. And I shook his hands and he said, now you can tell anybody who shakes your hands from now on for the rest of your life that they have there are two handshakes away from the Battle of Waterloo. Now, I don't know if you know the Battle of Waterloo, but it was a big, huge European battle in 1815. And your grandfather was? Well, no, he'd met somebody who'd fought at it when okay. an old man. And so that was, his, so he was one shake away from it. Yes. And, and then and now you're two shakes yeah, away. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, and, and, and it, that, that kind of comment makes history very interesting to mm -hmm. one. And, and my grandmother, one of my grandmothers was, a really interesting woman. She, she, uh, she went to university in the 1890s in Glasgow when they're not allowed to register women. They, they were only allowed to sit in the classes. They didn't get degrees or anything like that. And my grandmother, in, in retrospect, she got, I think she got a dementia. She got older. Well, she had, and, and, and she had atrial fibrillation. So, so, so she probably had a, a vascular dementia. And, and she would tell me these stories of her political goings on on the Clyde, <laughs> which, which was kind of one of the birthplaces of, of, of um, the Labour Party. Um, uh, uh, the NDP, you, you would, and, and indeed, um, 
indeed, Tommy Douglas was about the same age group as these people, the, the guy that, in, that brought healthcare to Canada. Yes. He, he, he used to be involved in, when he was young, he used to go and listen to these politicians on the client. And my grandmother used to tell me their stories about them. And she would send me up to the wee shop to buy her a packet of cigarettes. And if I did that, I was allowed to feel her pulse. Which is oh. so very exciting. <laughs> anyway, so I had great fun with my grandparents. And if you speak to most geriatricians, they will tell you that they were imprinted by oh. elders who had lots of interesting things about them. Yes. Uh, I can. Now, Glasgow was the first uh, university in, in, I think, maybe in the world to actually establish a chair of geriatric medicine. Um, a chap called Ferguson Anderson. He didn't invent geriatric medicine, but he, he got an established chair. And I once went to visit him in the geriatric hospital there. And, and, and it was, I mean, it, the old St. Peter's used to be like this too. There were grim places. There were horrible dark places that smelled of urine and people just lying in beds. And it was really very sad. And you realize that maybe this was something that you could attend to and, and maybe do a little bit about. So that is what got me interested in geriatric medicine. The other thing that I always say to students that's so interesting about geriatric medicine is not only the patients and the stories they tell you, and I learned about European history. I even learned about, I should tell you the story, of, I'll tell you another story in a minute, but I learned, I learned about uh, European history in the, in the 19th, in the 20th century from the patients I had who escaped from Eastern Europe, from Southern Europe, from the Italians who escaped the Dutch, who all who escaped, and indeed the British who escaped war. I once had a, a, a really lovely old patient um, uh, who was a Japanese Canadian. And he was talking, this is the story I was gonna tell you. Mm -hmm. And he said to me, um, no, I said it was it was it was Armistice Day in the ward, and he was wearing medals. Huh. And I said I didn't know Japan was in the First World War. <laughs> because I knew that Japan had been in the Second World War on the other side. And he, he looked at me and he said, "I was at the Somme with the Japanese Canadian soldiers at the Somme." Incredible. And, and, and then he said, and you know where I was in the Second World War? Mm. Where do you think he was in the Second World War? Oh, I don't even know. He was interned by the Canadian oh. government. Oh, wow. I know. And, and sometimes I used to get in trouble because I would be too busy talking to patients to find out what I should be doing. But people have such wonderful stories. To yes. Tell. And clearly your interest in their stories and their history, really, I, I can only imagine how that made you such an excellent practitioner and throughout your career. And you mentioned that you still share some of these stories with your students. And so I, I, I believe that you're involved in the medical education program. Oh, I well. used to be very much more involved. Mm -hmm. I mean, I used to be very much more involved, but I, and I probably should have stopped doing it now, but I just feel it's my little bit 
during the pandemic to keep on going because I know that my colleagues are very stressed and overworked with all the work they've got to do in the hospital. So I'm not doing hospital work anymore, but I certainly still teach the medicals. Not don't teach them. You don't teach medical students at McMaster. You guide them to learning. Facilitate. <laughs> you tutor and facilitate. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> yes. So it's great fun to talk to these young kids and to tell them some of these stories. And, and I, I think I'm probably the only practitioner left in Canada who can actually translate Latin for them because all of the medical words that they're trying to master, they're all Latin. And I mean, what on earth are we doing? We need to, well, I, everything's becoming initials now, which is even worse than Latin. Yes, I, I, all the acronyms. Yes, indeed. But, but that is because of Latin. The other thing that's important about my interactions with med students is they take, they, I learn from them. I mean, they have come fresh from all the university courses. They keep you updated, medical students, because especially in the basic sciences. I learn from them. And they're always such interesting young people. So it's good fun. It's great that you have this opportunity to maintain connection with the medical students. And yeah. I, I know that you have so much wisdom to share and experience to share with the, the learners. And I, I wonder and it's as good for we- them to see that I actually don't know everything. And, and mm-hmm. I can say, I don't know the answer to that. You'll need to, you know, we're talking about echocardiograms. Do I know how to, to, to interpret an echocardiogram? No, I do not. But, but it's good for them to know it's not necessary to know everything. What you need to know is to know where to go if you, if you need help, as well as knowing something. Yeah. <laughs> yes, knowing where to find the answers. And I, I also wanted to touch on your faculty experience over the past several decades and hearing just a bit about that initial uh, well, your, your move to Ontario and then your move to the residency program in internal medicine. As, we, as you have moved forward in your career, do you look back and identify some suggestions or areas where you wish you can share of that experience with others so that they can learn from what you've gone through? or paths that you might've taken that you didn't take previously or areas that you would have explored? I mean, it was hard even in, when did I get a faculty position? 1981. There were not all that many women on faculty at that point in time. Uh, We did tend to get sidelined a bit. Uh, you know, the committees and the leadership positions were all filled by men. Here's something that I would share. And it's still, the interesting thing is it's still in existence. Now, I think it was, I think we've worked out, it must be about 40 years ago, that a group of female physicians decided that it was because well, of course, when I first started, and you, you, you know, 
for, when I was a resident and and it, and the, the the surgeons I know would would say this too women had to if you were if you were a woman surgeon you had to change in the nurses room because there was no female changing rooms for surgeons mm. that kind of thing and certainly there was places where people would congregate and talk people would play golf people would do all all kinds of things and and often as 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 one of the few women around it was it was quite lonely at times uh, <laughs> it, it was quite lonely and so what we did was now it wasn't me that did this but uh, the, there was a women's group a women's social group that uh, that was established by several female family doctors including may cohen um, whom I'm sure you've heard of. Yes. Uh, and there was me. I was the only internist that was in, involved there. And uh, there was an anesthetist. Uh, there was a, and there was a psychiatrist. And what we did was we arranged to meet once a month at some restaurant in Hamilton. We weren't allowed to talk about medicine. We had to talk about books we were reading. I don't, I'm, I can't remember. I think we may not have been allowed to talk about our children either. <laughs> but, but it was basically, it was basically a, a totally social happening. And, and we met once a month. And, and would you believe it? We still meet. Oh, incredible. Now, May must be about 90 now, but we meet by Zoom once a month and chat away about what things and what 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 who's doing what oh that's that amazing is, that is a very long-standing group so if you were asking me what advice would I get I would say to I would say make sure because suddenly you realize wait a minute I don't have all that many friends and the friends I've got are, are you know the people that you work with or this group of, of women and um, it was just make sure that you've got someone that you can talk to mm. about something that's nothing to do with what you do all day or, or you can sound off if you want. We would sound off. I suppose we did sound off a bit about <laughs> some of the fellows. <laughs> but yes, I imagine, though, that this may be in contention for the longest running group in in our history. Well, starting with master in the medical school. Yeah, exactly. It it was uh, you should speak to. I don't know if you've spoken to me yet, but you should. I'm sure she's writing. Somebody's writing her biography. So you'll Mm. have access to all her stuff. But one of the, the things that w- we did last year I didn't I, I still have it I, I don't know where it is but um I talked to the archivist at, uh, at McMaster because mm-hmm. I read about come and visit the third annual day in women's health or something mm-hmm. and I thought, that's not true we had a women's we had women's health days running in the 80s and 90s and and these have been because that's what happens you forget you forget who institutional memory is very short and okay. and you forget who who and what came before you and and i'm sure that 
um, some of the, these women that that are in this group that I, I'm talking about, the, 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 one of them was the president of the Hamilton Academy of Medicine and what battles they had at the Hamilton Academy of Medicine, the, the women in medicine to, to <laughs> you want to talk to someone, I could give you their names if you wanted, you, you want to, the, the difficulties they had one of them, I think, oh, no, I'm, I, I shouldn't even say this because you should talk to her about it, but, but uh, sort of uh, when she, she remonstrated something, the comment was, why don't you go home and bake cookies? <laughs> mm. <laughs> but, and that was, that was very common in these days, these kind mm -hmm. of disparaging comments that nobody, nobody would dream of doing now. And that's what I, I keep wanting to say to the, the 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 young people of nowadays that the earth has changed over 50 years for sure for sure um and of course the 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 other huge change that there's been as you well know in in the canadian population and canadian and in canadian healthcare is the fact that it's not only the white man is no longer the the <laughs> It's no longer the be-all and end-all of everything. <laughs> I think what you've highlighted is what, when you mentioned talking with your students earlier and how they said, you know, there's so much that needs to change now. And you're, you're highlighting that the decades that you've lived through and the changes that you've seen, that is the historical context that is so valuable for us as we move towards greater change, more progress, and more growth in our health sciences. You're, you're giving us an example of how much has changed in the four decades that you've been, over four decades that you've been here at McMaster. Absolutely, absolutely. There, there has been enormous change. And uh, Mark Crowder is, 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 is a good example of that. I mean, he's very forward thinking, I think. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, yes, but I mean, some of the previous chairman, there, there were wonderful characters. And, and I think I'm probably, because I'm still kind of working, I'm probably the only, well, my husband too, uh, who've, who've actually worked under all of the chairs of medicine, Moran Campbell, I mean, what a, an absolute character he was. And he taught me how to understand blood gases and nobody else could do that. None of the others could do it. I just, uh, he just taught me something I have never been able to forget. <laughs> and who came after Moran Campbell? Jack Laidlaw. He was an endocrinologist. He, yeah, I was still a resident, but he was an endocrinologist. And I can remember working with him. And I think he was uh, I think it was, yes, it was. It was when I was a resident that the residents went on strike. Do, 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 have you heard about that? When the we went on strike, I can't remember what it was we went on strike for, but do you know who the leader of the strike was? No, who was it? Gordon Guyot. Oh. <laughs> he, was a, he was a pyro. You want to know about that strike? 
you want to you want to um you want to ask Gordon guy it yes he was that he was the head the head honcho for the for the residence strike and we um that now that would be I would be an R3 and R4 but I can remember Jack Laidlaw he was the chairman of medicine absolutely terrified don't leave me Irene he would say in case there's a code called I have no idea what to do uh. <laughs> so, so anyway, and and who was after Jack Laidlaw? John Cairns, and he was a very and what John Cairns did, he did establish a women in medicine committee for the Department of Medicine. So that that was the beginning of better days, and I think uh, he hired a lot more women, and it, there began to be a lot more women around at that point. But I, I think when I was there was one point well how many times did this happen to me in my life but uh the department of medicine the executive which has the heads of all the divisions and i was the head of the division of geriatric medicine and there must be about 30 people in the room guess how many women were there three nope down me oh i was i was trying to be as conservative as possible. oh goodness one out of 30 oh but I and then I think uh, dermatology. The 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 oh, what's her name? Sadler, the the dermatologist. Anyway, that 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 there was two. Then there was then we were two. Oh <laughs> goodness, Doctor Chirpy, it has been so nice to talk with you and to hear just a bit, just a, I feel like we're only scratching the surface. So skimming the surface of your extensive history, not only here at the FHS, but also before you came to McMaster as well. And you can be sure that I'm also going to be reaching out to your husband, following up. He's much more academic than me. <laughs> oh, but I, I really appreciate your stories and experience. And I'm also taking away with me your example of the social connections that you maintain with the group of women that you meet with on Zoom every month and how it likely is very much the longest standing group meeting um, in the Faculty of Health Sciences. And well, just I think how it, it helped you. you the, the, one of the things that you hear so much nowadays is stress amongst physicians. And I think the, 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 we have to give, especially the younger and the middle career physicians, the, the, the opportunity to, to have creative ways to de-stress, not just listening to podcasts when they're at their children's <laughs> hockey games um but but and and this thing about going out to dinner is 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 one way i mean i suppose golf is another way but but uh, but 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 we as i mean the senior faculty should be looking at ways of de-stressing the the younger faculty and perhaps not expecting quite so much from them in terms of productive you know it's and 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 because we all went into medicine because we love patients and if we are at but but often 
Now, I don't think Mark is like this at all, but often you would think that the most important thing was how many publications that you, you get as a member of faculty or how many people you teach. That's not right. We're not there for that reason. We're there to look after patients. And, and I think allowing the younger and the middle career faculty to realize how important that is. That's something mm -hmm. I would want to do. Oh, most certainly. And you've highlighted how maintaining social connections, as well as maintaining involvement within your community, those, and that's coming through also in the other interviews that you've provided and the other and walking in the park with your dog. Yes, yes. Everybody yes. knows my dog in the park now. <laughs> yeah, that's right. But it highlights also your active engagement within your community, as well as now you're also sharing this uh, connection that you have with this group of women over the past several decades. And those are just two great examples that I'm going to carry forward with me as well. So thank okay. you so much. Thank okay. you for this interview. Bye-bye. Thank you for tuning in to the Mac PFD Spark podcast. This podcast is brought to you by the Office for Continuing Professional Development and the Program for Faculty Development at McMaster University's Faculty of Health Sciences. For more information on faculty development, be sure to check out our website at macpfd.ca. That's macpfd.ca. Here you can find other episodes as well as resources for your personal and professional development. A quick shout out to our sound engineer, Ishan Mania Panda, who has been an amazing asset to our team. Another shout out to Scott Holmes, who composed and supplied us with the music you've been listening to. That brings us to the end of this episode. We hope you've enjoyed it and be sure to tune in for our future episodes.